Hey everybody, thanks for listening to today's episode of Coffee, Cows, and Crops. Just wanted to jump in at the top of the episode here and let you know that we have a sponsor. So uh, we're going to have a quick word from AgSafe and then we'll get right into the episode with Kevin Elmi. Thanks for listening. What would you do if you could change one thing to make your farm safer? You can make your farm a safer place to live, work, and grow up on and we can help you get started. Sign up for Farmer's Care. An easy, free, and seamless way to make your farm safer every day. Go to take11.ca to get started. Sign up today and complete level one by the end of December to be entered to win a $500 UFA gift card. Coffee, Cows, and Crops is produced by the Peace Country Beef and Forage Association and hosted by Extension Coordinator Johanna Murray. On this podcast, we discuss management practices and research results with scientists, ranchers, researchers, and farmers. We strive to share innovative information and farming practices supported by sound science and practical wisdom. So grab a cup of coffee and let's get learning. Hi, everybody. Thanks for tuning in to today's episode of Coffee, Cows, and Crops. Uh, Today, we're chatting with Kevin Elmy from Cover Crops Canada about some some of the challenges and benefits of using cover crop cocktails for green manure and livestock feed and all that good stuff. But before we get into the fun stuff, Kevin, would you mind introducing yourself and talking a little bit about what you do at Cover Crops Canada? A lot of people wonder what I do at Cover Crops Canada, but that's another story. Um, So we started, uh, I moved back to the farm in 1999, uh, played around with uh, regenerative agriculture before it was cool. And in 2008, we decided uh, to, we started playing around with these cover crops. And in 2009, we decided maybe we should start a company that would help supply seed for people interested in cover crops. And that first year, and this this company I'll use very, very loosely, uh, it is a, basically it was my family. So my wife, my two girls, and my dad, my mother. So we basically doubled the amount of sales that I thought we were going to do in that first year. So I needed help. So we went out and we, um, we, we partnered, we, we interviewed a bunch of the seed houses in Western Canada. We partnered with Imperial Seeds so that this way, uh, Cover Crops Canada is a consultant for, uh, for Imperial Seeds as, as Cover Crops. And plus uh, Cover Crops Canada is still a, an independent coaching slash uh, consulting firm that that once again we specialize in in regenerative ag and and uh, soil health cover crops awesome so to start us off what qualifies as a cover crop or a cocktail crop is there a difference between the two <laughs> really good question because you know the the whole idea the definition of a cover crop is uh, growing plants to protect and improve the soil so very vague when when you listen to a lot of the, the the research from the United States, they they talk about these cover crops, and in a lot of cases there'll be one or two species in it. When you start talking about uh, a cocktail cover crop, now the cocktail is kind of with with that that frame that mind frame of okay, we're going to be throwing lots of species in, so we're going to add lots of diversity into it. So that's that's the main differentiation. So you know, the cover cropping is just the big umbrella, and then when we start talking about cocktail cover cropping, that means we're going to be going in with lots of plant diversity. Right, that makes sense. So. 
the other question is what's the difference between cocktail crops versus intercrops because they're both kind of that a few more species than maybe usual <laughs> exactly once again the the intercropping uh, once again by definition is growing two or more cash crops together and whether we harvest them at the same time or there's a, a lag between them uh, you know it, it, once again it goes back to definition and, and how people want to define it but the, the cocktail cover cropping not necessarily will be harvested. Intercropping will be harvested and then, then separated. Right. That makes sense. So what are some of the uses for cocktail cover crops in Canada? What are, what are the benefits of using them? Oh, the benefits uh, are basically soil health. And, you know, if, if you want to leave it as vague as that, it, uh, you know, checks the boxes. So when I start talking about soil health, we're talking about reducing the using of synthetics in our system. We are improving water infiltration. We are creating feed for animals, uh, reducing weeds, just all of these different layers. And so what we're doing is, is taking the power back, back in the 1940s when 24D was first registered and, and made com commercially available. That was the start of, of farmers giving up the power and the control of our operations over to the, the, the big companies. Well, it probably goes back to World War II with, with the, the invention of synthetic nitrogen. But, you know, this is that whole thing of when we go back to good old time agronomics, this is that whole, you know, regenerative ag uh, world. And so when we look at cover cropping, it's one of the tools can, that can be used within regenerative ag. But once again, do you need to have that tag in there to say that you're regenerative ag and so you can use cover crops? Absolutely not. We have a lot of very you know, high input uh, producers that are still using cover crops, but in a different mode because their goals are different. And this is the biggest thing when we start talking about cover cropping is the first thing we need to do is talk about our goals. What are we trying to accomplish by seeding these cover crops? Right, that makes sense. Uh, so those are some of the benefits is the soil health and the reduced inputs and um, all of that sort of stuff. The customizability, I guess. Um, so what are some of the main issues or the problems you can run into when you're using cover crops? Uh, well, <laughs> number one uh, that we found out this year was lack of water. <laughs> and, you know, when you get into these droughts, you know, there's not much we can it, when we're first getting into this, we, not much we can get can do to solve that issue. But once we start getting into these these systems and developing a system for your operation, then we're going to be start using some of these biennial crops and perennial crops in our systems to make our farms more water efficient. Right. Yes. So cover crops can be pretty expensive. Um, and like you mentioned this year, when it was so dry, there were a couple of people who planted cover crops and they didn't germinate. Our plots were one of them. <laughs> we seeded a lot of cover crop plots and not so good. But between the seed and the harvest and seeding and all of that sort of stuff, do the benefits outweigh the costs? Does it depend? How, how do you compare that sort of stuff? This is the neat thing that when we're setting our goals, one of the goals we're going to be putting in there is, is a budget. Uh, Steve Groff come up with one of the best lines that I've heard about cover cropping is treat your cover crops as you would your cash crops. So 
how do we treat our cash crops? Do we just uh, on on May 20th decide we're going to go seed a crop? No, we have a plan. We're going to be growing this crop. We're going to put this much fertilizer. If you're conventional, if you're not, if you're, if you're organic, you know, what amendment are we putting down? Are we going to intercrop? The plan's in place, you know, starting this time of year in, in December. When we have that plan in place and we, okay, this is the plan, this is what we're doing, this is our budget. Now we can go out and, you know, fill those holes of, of okay, so this is the cover crop. We want something green in the vegetative stage throughout the growing season. We want plant diversity, you know, check off those, those boxes. So when we're doing that, it's okay, so what seed do you have on hand? So if we want something to overwinter, it's stay in the vegetative stage. Okay, we put down 10 pounds of winter wheat. Uh, if, if that comes out of the bin. So what's the cost? Fairly minimal. If we use uh, things like if you're in a, a cash cropping situation, we want to put down uh, a half a pound of Italian ryegrass. It's going to cost between a dollar and a dollar fifty an acre, not huge expense. So that this way we can go through and make plans find out what the budgets are, see what uh, Drew Lerner, for instance, is going to be saying what the, the forecast is going to be and, you know, make the plan. So if it's going to be, you know, if you think it's going to be a dry year, yeah, let's cut those inputs way back, keep things nice and cost cost effective. If uh, on the other hand, we're going to get into to the, the flooding extreme. Okay, so let's make sure we have lots of green plants on the bottom so that we're always sucking up water so that this way we're able to go on our land and, and actually get the crop in, get the crop off. So when we, when someone is talking to me and we're putting together a blend for their operation, and if the price of um, uh, say kale is twice the price of what collards are, guess what? That's a sideways move. If uh, we're going through and, and uh, people don't like the price of the annual clovers because you know the, the supply is a little on the tight side this year and, and demand is up, so we're expecting the prices to be up a little bit and we get sweet clover in place in way cheaper. Well, let's move to that. The negative is sweet clover is going to, you know, it's a biennial, so it will overwinter. So it's going to take more management. So it's all managing within what do you have available? And then what substitutable species do we have access to that'll do the same job? So we have some of our, our people that we work with. I have literally people that have their cover crop seed expense at 75 cents an acre and i have customers at 75 dollars an acre both of them are happy that is what they want that's within their budget that's what they want to accomplish so we're able to work within budgets within within the soil types within moisture regimes within you know grain versus organic versus livestock or mixed farms you know all of these things it's just working on a system that's going to work for them Right. That makes good sense. So cocktails have a lot of different use, uses. I know up here in the piece, uh, lots of folks use them as either green manure or more commonly as silage for livestock or grazing. And using cocktails for feed can be a little bit tricky because plants mature at different rates and they have different levels of palatability and all of that fun stuff. So uh, are there things that you recommend to people who are planning to use cocktails for cattle or livestock grazing or feed or that sort of stuff? Uh, just worked on a, a blend for for a person uh, just north of Edmonton, and and they they 
they threw a blend together. And one of the things that I suggested when I looked at the blend is the brassicas are way too high. Uh, he was at six or eight uh, uh, seeds per square foot. And so one of the things you find, like number one, your brassicas, your, your relative feed value of the, those tops are in that 250 to 300 range. There's no animal that needs that type of relative feed value. Uh, the other thing is when you look at the brassicas, they are nutrient scavengers. So they do not really give anything back to the soil and they will compete with everything else that you're growing. So normally in a lot of these blends, I back those off to, you know, maybe one seed per square foot is, is plenty. Um, and unless you're looking at, uh, you know, a full seeded cover crop where you're looking at, you know, covering the soil and, and capturing all those nutrients and suppressing winter annuals, then high brassicas, absolutely, if you have high nutrition. So that when we start playing around with sunflowers, we start playing around with, um, you know, the annual clovers, uh, the, the biennials, uh, the grasses. When we get those in, and then you throw the forbs in, and you know some of the weird and wonderful, uh, those problems of maturity start disappearing. Uh, talked to Dr. Chris Nichols about a month ago. We did a, a meeting with her, and one of the things that that she said was there's research showing uh, that flax. If you have just a touch of flax in there, it'll control and 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 limit, either limit or supply the amount of boron available to the other plants in the, in the blend to get the maturities to come together quicker. And so is that the only one? I would assume Facilia is gonna be very similar to that, but uh, you know, all this research um, between adding more diversity in plants, and once again, it's just not you know, the, the number of varieties that you put in, it's the numbers of species from different functional plant groups. And that's the really important thing. So if we have, uh, you know, if you tell me that you're doing silage and you have lots of diversity because you put in barley, oats, triticale, wheat, and peas, in reality, you have two functional plant groups. You have a spring, uh, a cool season um, grass annual, and you have an annual legume, cool season. So two functional plant groups. So if you want to add that diversity, we throw in the biennial grass, a warm season. We throw in uh, some forbs. So we put put in some some non-brassica uh, broadleafs. We add that diversity that way. Right. And often cocktails are used as, as green manure or as a, as a way to find those nutrients and bring them to the surface or to fix nitrogen and that sort of stuff. Where do you go for that sort of information? That's uh, that goes to a lot of experience. Um, you have to find out where certain plants like to grow and why. Uh, so one of the books I highly recommend for people to read is When Weeds Talk by J. L. McCammon. I would uh, I need to talk to him about getting a royalty because every presentation I do I throw that book out there because it's a great resource to to use. So that when we find the condition that, you know in this case where where weeds will thrive it's because they have an ecological advantage over other species to get a certain species or some certain nutrient in the soil or they can they can um, tolerate so in in the case of foxtail barley elevated sodium so that okay so what other species can we replace the foxtail barley with to do the same job to grow in those same type of soils so when we start looking at the nutrient availability the real easy one is nitrogen 
how do we get more nitrogen in the soil? Legumes. So how do we increase some of these other nutrients in the soil? Well, all of the plants that are growing in our soils, they have the mechanisms of getting the nutrients they need out of the soil through root exudates. So the root exudates go into the soil and they trigger certain biology to go out and get certain nutrients for those plants. So there are some, some deep, you know, some species that are, you know, more, more in tune to get certain nutrients than others. And that's the reason why doing these cocktail blends and having this plant diversity, we're going to have the different root exudates going into the soil, triggering different biology to go get different nutrients. So six to nine different functional plant groups, ideally in a mix, and that will supply and, and gather up enough nutrients you know, different sources, different uh, different levels to then replenish that soil for that next year's crop. That makes sense. And just a quick note on that six to nine species or yeah, it's plant species sort of situation. What do you recommend for, for seeding rates uh, when you're starting to do this sort of thing? Absolutely. So one of the things that we always go back to is, you know, number one, what is a, in quotes, normal seeding rate of a monoculture of that species? And so when we start playing around with something like um, uh, crimson clover, well, in Canada, we don't grow crimson clover in a monocrop. So then, okay, so you have to do some research and find out and, and do some assumptions. But so then we find out what what rates we're looking at monoculture, then we figure out how many species we're putting in and then what representation we want to see of that species or group in this blend and how many other species we're putting in. So then when we add the next layer of the quick rule of thumb is when you start intercropping or polycropping, what you'll do is use 120% of the normal seeding rate of a monoculture crop. So, so really simple, isn't it? So if we assume that, so going to the Alberta uh, agriculture website where they have a nice little chart of the plant densities of different, different crops which you're growing. So when you're looking at growing cereals, you know, the, the quick number is, uh, is about 30 seeds per square foot is what you want to be seeding most of your cereals at. So that tells me that in the mix using a, a blend that is dominated with cereals, you would be using 120% of 30 seeds per square foot. So you'll be looking for about 36 seeds per square foot. And then it's going to be, are you broadcasting? Are you drilling it in? Are you on sand? Are you on clay? Um, what's your organic matter? Uh, is it going to rain after? All of those, those variables come in. So, but quick rule of thumb, you know, if it's going to be a, a, a blend dominated by your, your grasses, your cereals, go 120% of your normal seeding rate of a monoculture. But seeing that when we're dealing with these blends and we're going to be going in with uh, 30 seeds per square foot of barley, in reality, we have to cut that barley rate back so we create more room for the, more of the diversity. And most people are scared to drop their seeding rate back because they're going to get weeds. Why is there weeds? Because they have space. But if you are filling that space with this, this cover crop, then you're not going to get those weeds as long as you get them established. So what complicates all of this is if we use something like teff grass, which is 1.4 million seeds per pound, so smaller than Timothy, 
now you're dealing with mortality issues. So then you have to put it into, you know, taking it into account of higher seedling mortalities. Whereas if you're using something like sunflowers, big seed, they're going to, your, your percent germination, your 70% uh, emergence is going to be way higher than what something like teff grass would be. So when I'm doing blends for people, I'll start putting in numbers for the large seeded stuff. And at the end, then I'll put in the small seeded stuff uh, for, for, for pounds. So that this way, if, if the mortality turns out to be a hundred percent because they see the teff grass at an inch and a half or two inches deep where, you know, Right. When you're dealing with small seed, it's never going to come up. They're still going to have a decent stand. So, so it's a bit of a, there's some science there and there's some, some art in there. It's simple. It's just complicated. It, it's simple until you have to actually do the math. Mm-hmm. Well, that's the reason why I have spreadsheets. <laughs> <laughs> so there are some, I know there's some cocktail seed mixes that are just kind of commercially available that are pre-mixed. Are there things that people should be watching out for or looking at if they're going to buy a pre-built cocktail mix? Or there's some stuff that you should keep in mind when kind of evaluating which one's which? Oh, yeah, uh, big time. Uh, I've I have lots of phone calls uh, saying, okay, uh, I got this blend. I put it in last year. And now I have this stuff called hairy vetch coming up everywhere how do you kill it in my canola and uh Lantrell is about the only thing so knowing your species knowing what species will overwinter uh knowing what herbicides that are tolerant to the 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 cover crops so that this way once again you don't fry it when you go and spray um the allelopathy is the other one big one that i'm always concerned about that when people put fall rye into these mixes uh fall rye people the reason why people use fall rye is because it it keeps you know it keeps weeds down but fall rye does not know the difference between a cover crop and a weed so that's one of the things with I always warn people about when they're playing around with fall rye that, you know, if you're doing a cover crop with it, um, make sure the the cover crop is cheap because you you may not, (laughs) might not see it. So, so those are the the biggest ones. The seeding rate is the other one that always has to be, you know, talked about, you know, how many seeds per square foot does this blend give me? So that are we talking about, you know, is there, uh, you know, half a seed per square foot or is it at five or is that at 20 or is that 40, which once again, if we're adding 40 seeds per square foot plus our main crop, what, is that overkill? Mm-hmm. And on that note of uh, getting Harry Vetch coming in your canola the next year, um, do you have some tips and just some options maybe for, for, getting rid of your your cover crop either in the spring or in the fall when it's done how, how do you get rid of it <laughs> <laughs> yeah for the overwintering stuff um mm-hmm. you know one of the things like if you're if you're conventional uh going in with some some glyphosate uh, is is usually a good thing um you're doing a pre-seed burn off anyways so it, it fits well uh, unless if it's hairy vetch then you have to go into the 240 or something like that to, to help kill it the other thing is that what we found that had some some awesome success from (laughs) all across the prairies is using fulvic acid in with your herbicides uh does a Mm. beautiful job of sharpening up the weed control i had one producer uh go in 
with a two-thirds rate of glyphosate with the, the fulvic acid right beside a field that he sprayed right after full rate of glyphosate with no fulvic acid. He said there was a 10-day difference in the fall ride dying in the spring where he wow. had the fulvic acid quicker. So, so there's some really nice, neat things like that are, that are out there. If they're organic, uh, to go out and, you know, do some tillage, um, that's, you know, going to be the way to go uh, that, you know, the traditional sense. But uh, once again, Dr. Chris Nichols, one of the things that she said is if you have a Chevron roller, what you do is you go in and you roll it once, you wait four to five days, and then you roll it at 90 degree angle. And as long as there's enough right. plant growth, and enough crimping, uh, that will actually really do, do an awesome job of, of killing the, uh, the, any plants growing there without, uh, without having to go and do tillage. That makes sense. I love hanging around smart people because they make me not as dumb as I was yesterday. <laughs> it's the best. <laughs> so for the, for the folks who are working with livestock and are maybe doing grazing, especially over the winter, we have some people up here who, who do kind of the late season grazing with cocktails. Um, is there anything you recommend to people who are going to graze cocktails when they're first starting out with that? Oh, uh, there's a whole bunch of neat things we've been doing. And, and once again, the, with the livestock, these, these cover crops, it just makes so much sense. Because once again, in the spring, if you can have a cover crop that you grew all year and you take cut a silage off or you graze it through your it or whatever in the livestock operation, and you have something that's going to be green right up until the snow flies, and whether you can stockpile, graze it, or once again, options are there. Then you have portion and we're talking you know maybe half of your your uh, your stand uh and once again making sure there's enough there to so it's going to be viable so if we have something green in when the snow is leaving and it's starting to green up and start growing in may as compared to our perennials that are maybe a little bit on the slower side and we have a place to kick those cows and we know they're just a biennial stand, so it's going to be terminated in that, that second year. So we can abuse that. We know that we're going to kill it. As compared to that perennial, let's get that perennial established, woken up, get everything cranking, so this way when you know, we finished abusing our cover crop, we can go in and we have good growth in, in the good, healthy stand of our, our perennial. So this is one of the keys that, that Clayton Robbins, uh, the great guy, if you know, one another good speaker, he's a good one. Uh, and what he says is never graze your grazer cut your forages in, in August, September, October. You want them to establish so they can overwinter properly. And this is where these cover crops shine. So that, okay, you know, what are my cows going to eat? Okay, well, we got this cover crop. So we got three months of grazing in there. Once your perennial forage goes dormant, then you can kick them back out into that. Right. That makes good sense. Another question on, on species, number of species and that sort of stuff. I know, I know there's some people who do some really, really complex mixes with like 18 different species. <laughs> and then there's other people who do a lot simpler where they're kind of between that four to ten sort of range um why might you recommend one or the other is there a is there a difference 
Well, the, the first of all is what is your goal? Uh, I, I, I don't quite get tired of asking what is your goal because it, every time it's going to be a different answer potentially. Mm -hmm. So that when we're going through and we're, we're developing this plan, and so if we have, uh, you know, really flat land, no, like everything is very uniform across that whole field, then going with a, a simple a blend is going to work. When we start dealing with peat, sand, clay, loon, goop, uh, hills, lowland, and we just want to see because it's you know it's 40 acres and it's not enough not big enough to go in and and you know seed each area separately then going to more diversity is going to help when we start talking about having 18 species in it goes back to the fact of i go back to my triangles of grass legume broadleaf and in the broadleaf it's brassica non-brassica and ford how many of those do we have checked off and when we look at grasses warm season, cool season, annual, biannual, perennial of each. What diversity do we have in there? So if we have wheat, barley, oats, triticale, and you know, there's four. Well, no, that's just one. So we need to look at the diversity part of it. And so when you're at 18, of course, you're going to start running out of cereals in a, in a short period of time. So you have another 14 different species you can be putting in there. But once again, you put in uh, turnips, uh, forage, brassica, kale, collards, they're all this one group. Right. So these are the things that we look at. So when we start, you know, splitting the, the differences between, uh, you know, kale and collards, yeah, there, you know, there's a little bit difference in plant, but their function is the same. Mm -hmm. So that when we start looking at, you know, diluting, you know, maybe we should be putting more facility in, but because we have 18 species, we can only put in a tenth of a pound of it. So, you know, we're only going to see a splattering once every square meter or something like that. Whereas, you know, we could be really cranking up the density of it. It's not going to hurt the yield, but it's going to do a lot of soil building. Once again, what is your goal? So I guess on the note of goals, <laughs> what, are, what are some of the different goals that you see most commonly for, for cover crops? <laughs> just to give kind of an idea of, of what you're usually aiming for with cover crops. The last three years, I need feed. <laughs> I, need, <laughs> I don't care how I need feed. So, uh, so, you know, for the, for the livestock producers, like I said, it's, it's the cover crops are a slam dunk because if you are, you know, if the person comes to me and they want to produce hay and okay, we do the hay blend, it costs uh, $30 an acre and they got 90 bales off of it. Okay, so it costs, you know, these, these many dollars for, for the bales, for the, for the seed, for the, and so the, they got the economics all figured out really quickly. Same thing with the grazing. So if we do a rotational grazing blend or a stockpile grazing blend, okay, so we got so many days of grazing, it costs so many dollars, um, you know, we've, it, it made sense or it didn't make sense. Then when you throw the complication in of, okay, so we, uh, you know, Clayton Robin says you shouldn't graze in August, September, October, because this is when your pastures and hay are, are wanting to get ready for that next year. So we're going to have this cocktail grazing blend. We've got so many grazing days out of it, but what's the value of having a stronger pasture or a hay crop that next year? 
So, mm -hmm. you know, there's that intrinsic uh, value in there that, well, I, I don't know, <laughs> pick a number. Um, yeah. When we get to the grain producers, you know, then it's, they're looking at, um, you know, what is the, uh, uh, what's the value of uh, increasing water infiltration? Uh, you know, what, what is that value? Whereas when you start talking to producers and, you know, their sloughs are disappearing and, you know, they may be gained uh, four or five acres on a quarter section. Um, what's the value of that? When we start intercropping and, and having, you know, some of these annual clovers growing with your wheat. And so you put uh, three pounds of, of annual clover down with your wheat and that's going to fix, you know, you know, somewhere between 20 and, and 50 pounds of nitrogen. Once again, it's not a fixed number for them to say, there's my value. Here's my value. And did the protein go up wrong because compared to this one, didn't it? So it, it's, it's a little trickier from that standpoint of a one-year snapshot. But when we start talking mm -hmm. about, you know, having uh, a half a pound of Italian ryegrass growing underneath your wheat so that this way in the fall, you don't have any, any serious weeds growing in the fall so that this way you don't have to do that fall burnoff and it's going to control your winter annuals. Okay, so that's a little easier mm -hmm. so that, okay, I'm saving, you know, uh, eight bucks an acre for glyphosate and a pass with the sprayer. So there's another seven bucks. So there's 15 bucks and I'm not doing that in the spring. So there's... There's some some quick numbers, but there's they're a softer right. number than than looking at a, a livestock operation. And then you yeah. know the next step of okay, so the livestock guy talks to the grain guy and says, Hey, if you see the cover crop underneath your wheat when you harvest your wheat and you have the Italian ryegrass and and uh, and and crimson clover growing, I'll bring my cows over and I'll do some grazing. Now he's going to get an extra, what, 50 cents a, a cow a day for grazing, and he gets another 50 days of grazing off of it. There's 25 bucks an acre. Now, once again, you know, what, what's the goal? What are you trying to do? Um, all of these things put layers on. So in you know, a lot of the prairies, we're dealing with sal a lot of saline seeps uh, because of, of management and, you know, changing of water cycles. So I'm dealing with a lot of salinity reclamation uh, and remediation, yep. um, hard pan, uh, weeds. It, it's, you know, completely all, all of the issues we have in agriculture can be fi fixed by plants. Cool. All right. Um, what else do I have here? The methods. Oh yeah, go ahead. Methods of seeding would be the next one to talk about. So that, you know, if, if moisture is good, harrowing can work. Um, if it's dry like it was the last couple of years, doesn't work all that well, it's best to be put into the ground. When you're looking at seeding depth, when we're dealing with, you know, peas and corn and sunflowers and teff grass and, and some of the small clovers, you know, where do you seed that at? That's normally the mm -hmm. next question that people ask. So there's, there's two trains of thought. You can either take your large seeded stuff and sink it down where it needs to be and then make another pass and put the small seeded stuff shallow. Or if moisture is okay, uh, what you can do is cut the difference. So if you're seeding your wheat and, and, and oats at an inch and a half, let's take it back to three quarters of an inch and then seed your, your full cover crop all at that, that half, half depth range. Mm -hmm. I have heard of people too, I'm not sure whether they mixed it in with their fertilizer or what they did exactly, but they 
figured it out where they could seed their bigger seeds down at kind of the correct depth and then they mix their little littler seeds in and just kind of broadcast them and then how to pass with a roller or whatever afterwards mm -hmm. yeah it, it all goes back to you know your seeding uh, system your uh, the, the operation your moisture your texture of the soils your organic matter um is it gonna rain is it not gonna rain <laughs> All yeah. of those things, like the rest of, of, of agriculture, it's all dependent on, on what you have and, and what you're going to get. So it's, mm -hmm. um, it is interesting. On, on the flip side, the really interesting thing is when we start playing around with these mixtures and when we get to this next level and we're looking at, at drought tonics, one of the things that we've, we've noticed, and, and once again, mycorrhizae fungi is a beautiful thing to have happy in your soils. So when we start looking at some of these blends, we're looking for drought tonics because, you know, it's once again, a little bit of a hot button right now. When we have a taproot down into the soil and it's able to access soil stored water, the neat thing with mycorrhizae and these mycorrhizal plants is they will actually share water. So oh. using things like chicory, like uh, sweet clover, lupins, those species are, you know, they have an extremely deep taproot. And what they're able to do is bring up water and share with their neighbors. Because mm -hmm. the mycorrhizae, they need healthy growing plants. If they don't have a healthy host, they're dead. Right. And so there's a, a research study. What they did is they grew some lupins and some uh, chickpeas chickpeas and wheat together in a, in large barrels. And what they did is they had uh, the, the wheat and the, the chickpeas growing side by side, uh, unobstructed. The next uh, tank, they had a, a barrier between them. And what they did is they induced drought stress onto the, those, each one of those barrels. And the one barrel without the, the impedance of, of the barrier between the, the chickpeas and the, and the wheat, everything was fine. Where they had the barrier, the chickpeas were into the water, but because there was a barrier there, the wheat couldn't get uh, access to the mycorrhizae and the wheat died. Hmm. So That's a interesting. Experiment showing, showing how these, these synergies work between these plants and, you know, the soil biology. Mm -hmm. That's interesting. Oh, the deeper you go, the more fun it gets. <laughs> For sure. So on that note, what is your best or go-to advice for people who want to get better at cover cropping? Set, setting goals is number one. Uh, knowing species would be the other. Um, you know, once you have your goals and you understand what the species do, then it becomes a lot easier. So, you know, there's been people in the past, they've, mm -hmm. uh, you know, putting brassicas in with their cereals when they're going to go for grain. Well, you have to remember the brassicas are scavengers, so they're going to take nutrients away from your cash crop. So you, you don't want to mix those or corn or anything like that. Uh, whereas when you're dealing with your, your clovers, your, your highly mycorrhizal plants, highly mycorrhizal plants tend to have more synergies with your cash crops than ones that are non-mycorrhizal. So having facility and to the annual clovers, mm -hmm. things like that, they're going to help build that, that, relationship and, and build your plant production so those are right. you know that's that's part of it the other one is adding this functional diversity 
uh, both above ground and below ground. So your functional uh, plant groups, and then looking at your root systems to make sure that you have some of these tap roots down because in our systems, agriculture systems today, what do we have for a tap root? Why do we have this hard pan down at eight inches down the soil? Because we don't have any roots that are willing to go past that. So we need to have these tap roots going down, opening up that soil, allowing it to breathe. Then our thistles disappear. Then our, our, our conditions disappear. Our infiltration increases. Our, our carbon storing increase. Our water storing capacity increases. It just the whole system works so much better. Mm-hmm. I'll put in a shameless plug for, for PCBFA and, and annual or um, agricultural research associations too, because we, we do a lot of research on which plants from the function, different functional groups perform well in local areas. So up in the piece, some, some plants perform better than others. Absolutely. And this is, well, when, when we sold the farm, why did I move to Olds? Number one, I spent half my winters out here anyways, but number two, those research groups that, that you belong to, they are absolutely wonderful of, of being able to bring the the information local mm-hmm. so that yeah we're talking cover crops but okay so yeah we're, we're listening to steve Groff from pennsylvania so what does that mean well something but not much you listen to uh green cover seeds well you know if they're from nebraska so what does that, does that mean well, not too much but when you can hear that this is up up in the piece this is what we've done this is what we've seen this is these are you know the winners these are the ones that we need more work on awesome <laughs> we, we are trying to to make life easier for producers so and it's it's always easier learning from someone else's mistakes and experiences than to uh, to replicate mistakes <laughs> <laughs> absolutely because when people ask me about cover cropping, I'll tell you all of the, the things that I screwed up on. And, and I don't think it's a mistake. It was learning opportunity. So that mm-hmm. this way, okay, I learned. So under these conditions, don't do this, don't do that. It, it's just going to get this ball rolling faster uh, and get more success out there. Yeah. Awesome. <laughs> all righty. Well, on that note, are there... Are there any resources we haven't mentioned yet if people want more information from you? Absolutely. Uh, covercrops.ca, so covercrops with an S.ca is the website that I, I've uh, started up. Uh, I'm on Facebook, I'm on Twitter, Instagram. Uh, my uh, email's on the webpage, my phone number is on there. Uh, so you can text me, you can phone me. Uh, if anybody is interested, last year I did write a book on cover cropping in Western Canada, so there's a, a plug for that book. Um, so that that's a resource I put together for Western Canada. So I, you know, people have said, "Oh, I should have got more specific," but it's hard to be specific when I'm talking to people from Manning and then uh, at uh, Winkler, Manitoba. So it gives you some, some base starts. And then this way, at least this way, when we start going through and I'm talking about setting up uh, goals, at least, okay, there's, there's the benchmark of where my philosophy is so that, you know, it isn't a, a out of left field when mm-hmm. we start asking these questions. So, so, yeah, but there's some other really good books. Uh, John Stitka's book, uh, The Soil Owner's Manual, Hand Manual, uh, really good, easy read. And then uh, as you get deeper into some of these uh, different topics, uh, The Farm as an Ecosystem by Jerry Bernetti. Uh, love that book. 
uh, mycorrhizal planet. I forget who wrote that one, but you know, there's some really, really good uh, resources out there. Awesome. I'll, I'll put some links to all that stuff down in the description of the podcast if you want to check them out. And thank you very much, uh, Kevin. This was good fun. Well, it, it should create um, create some interest. And I know I, I talked to the lady from, from Australia and she said, okay, when it comes up, let her know because she wants to listen to it too. So Right on. <laughs> so we'll get you international. <laughs> nice. Hello to West Australia. <laughs> Peace Country Beef and Forage Association is a research and extension group based out of Fairview, Alberta. Our mission is to help producers thrive in an agricultural system that is profitable, regenerative, and attractive to future generations. To learn more about what we do and see the results of our research trials or our archive of newsletters and fact sheets, check out our website at peacecountrybeef.ca. Want to get in touch? Have a burning question or a topic suggestion? Send us a message on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook. Thanks for listening!